Good morning, uh, City Light Church. Um, I asked Derek what passage I should speak on, and he told me, well, anywhere from Luke chapter 12, verse 35, to Luke chapter 14, verse 23. That's a lot, <laughs> believe it or not. So here's some of Jesus' teaching, and I'm actually leaving out there's two miracles in here, but here's what Jesus is teaching about in these passages. So he's, he's calling the disciples to be watchful, because we never know when He will return. So be ready, always ready to obey Him. And He talks about not bringing peace on the earth, but actually division. I've not come to bring peace, but division. He talks to us about interpreting the time, about times, about having wisdom in how we understand our days. Teaches about repentance. Unless you repent, you too shall perish. Teaches about the narrow door. About sorrow, his sorrow for Jerusalem. He teaches about humility as a key ingredient of the Christian faith. And then he talks about the parable of the great banquet. So I, I was just struggling, like, which passage should I pick? And I was going back and forth, back and forth. I don't know which one it is. I finally settled on the narrow door as a key teaching for our faith as well. But I, I do want to touch on the concept of repentance as well, because Jesus, this is a key issue for him as well, there in Luke chapter 13. So let's read this passage from Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. Jesus teaching about entering the narrow door. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching. So we know this from Luke chapter 10. He sent out the 72, two by two, and he sent them from place to place, from village to village to prepare to pre prepare the place ahead of him because he was going to go there. And so now we find him. He was going from place to place, uh, teaching in the villages as he made his way towards Jerusalem. So these are the last weeks, the last months of the life of Jesus. And, and someone approached him asking him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Verse 26, Then you will say, We ate with you, we drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. A couple of questions of, about salvation that show up in Scripture. Uh, one you're really familiar with in, in Acts chapter 16 is, is the jailer who, who comes to Paul and Silas and asks them this question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's response is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. So we know how we can be saved, by faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We know salvation is by grace alone. But here's this person that comes to Jesus 
and asks him a totally different question with regards to salvation. He asks him this question, will only a few be saved? Will only a few actually enter into the glory, into the kingdom of God? How did he come to this question? How did he come up with this question? Why would you even ask that question? See, as we follow Jesus on his journey towards Jerusalem, as he is teaching, here are some of the topics that Jesus taught about. And he, he spoke a lot about judgment, about the coming judgment. He proclaimed woes on cities. In, in, in Luke chapter 10, he talked about the, uh, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. These are cities where he had ministered before in Galilee, where he spent a lot of time. And he's, he's proclaiming a woe because he said, had Sodom and Gomorrah had the same message. You know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They were destroyed. They would have repented. Yet you have not repented. He says in chapter 11, He who is not with me is against me. Make, take your pick, either for me or against me. What is it? He goes on and talks about the men of Nineveh because he said, Now this city of Nineveh, which was a Gentile city, when Jonah came and preached to them, they repented. They didn't even have the gospel. And now is someone here which, who is greater than Jonah. Of course, Jesus, the Son of God. So he speaks about this, against this generation. He declares woes on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the, the religious elite. He says, fear him who has the power to throw you into hell. Who is that? God. God is the judge. Talks about the rich fool. Gives us the parable of the rich fool who is rich in the world but poor in his relationship with God. It's like with the, uh, you know the story of the rich young man where Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Talks about the disobedient servant who, um, uh, who will be punished for his disobedience. And he talks about bringing division and then in Luke chapter 13 he says, unless you repent, you all will perish also. Now, if you look at this teaching, if you follow Jesus along this journey to Jerusalem, I don't know if that person, that man, walked with Jesus for a period of time, if he heard him speak these words, he came to the conclusion, well, that means, you hear all these judgments, you hear all these woes that Jesus proclaims, will only a few people ultimately be saved. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus is not doing. He's not saying, oh, I'm sorry, that's not what I meant. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, you're misunderstanding what I'm trying to tell you here, okay? No, no, of course, God wants all men to be saved. And Paul says that actually in the book of Timothy, doesn't he? God's desire, God's will is for all men to be saved. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he actually says, therefore, make every enter effort to enter through the narrow door. So Jesus is actually confirming his assessment and saying, ultimately, yes, that's true. This, this is something which is really difficult for our generation to accept, I believe. Because our culture, our generation, I think, is steeped in this concept of universalism. Where we believe that the love of God covers every sin. It's Valentine's Day, you know, and we talk about love. And God's love, there's no greater love than that. Than, than the love of God which was poured out on, on us sinners before we, while we were yet sinners, God showed us His love for us. 
It's a God's love which covers all sins that ultimately God's desire is for all men to be redeemed. And this comes up with this concept of uh, universalism, which believe that ultimately all men will be saved, or everyone will be saved. It's like Rob Bell, you may be familiar with him, wrote a book in 2011 in which he talks about love winning. God's love wins. Against our sin, God's love wins. I honestly have not read the book. I, don't, I have no desire to read it. I just read about it. Um, and the, the one thing the person said who read the book is in his, in his uh, critique, in his commentary, said it's not so much what he's saying. This is not a new thought, so to speak, but it's how churches are beginning to accept that as a fact. It's almost like, yeah, God will never send anyone to hell. I mean, I'm such a good guy. You know, I'm such a good person. God, how would God dare to condemn us? How would God dare to send anyone into judgment? I always cringe at this concept, I'm a good person. I don't know. If somebody ever told you you're a good person, I cringe at that concept because I say, no, I'm not. I'm a sinner in need of grace. It's not, it's not, it's not me it's Christ in us, as, as, we, as you just quote. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory, you know. Where, where does that come from? It just, just give you a little bit of a history of theology here. Um, in, the, in the 19th century, about 60, 70 years ago, there was a theologian by the name of Karl Barth, and he may be, you may be familiar with him, maybe not. Karl Barth was a tremendous theologian, one of the most famous theologians, if you ask me, and and. What he did, actually, is in 1919, he wrote a commentary on the book of Romans in which he went back to the source, the Bible, and says, Bible is the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself to us. He took, he brought, he took people back to the cross. Now, why is that important? Because in those days, 100 years ago, a lot of mainline denominations were beginning to go, to go liberal, becoming liberal walking away from the revelation of God. And he went back to the source. Karl Barth was behind the Barman Declaration, if you if you're familiar with this, the Barman Declaration was the declaration of the confessing church in Germany against the Christian church of Luther um, of, of Hitler. So it was this church that Hitler tried to establish, and it was just this ooey gooey whatever kind of Christianity. And here's the here's Karl Barth, who who took a stand against this. No, this is this is false, and the revelation is in Scripture through Jesus Christ. Karl Barth had such a high view of the cross. He wrote about the cross of Jesus, who, upon which he, Jesus bore our sins. He died for our sins. And it influenced even people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, he never came out as a universalist, but he basically declared that the love of God is greater. It's the main sentence in Scripture that covers our sins. As a result, the next generations of Leaders in the Christian world began to believe that ultimately God's love wins, like Rob Bell here. God's love covers all our sins. Whether you believe it or not doesn't actually matter because God's love is greater than our sins. To give you an example, um, I came to know the Lord in 1985. I actually grew up in a liberal, reformed church. Came to know the Lord out of this. Um, the Lord was good, you know, saving me. Uh, 1985. I had been confirmed in the Protestant church um, in Switzerland. When I came to know the Lord, I began to talk about my faith. 
And so I, I, I received the visitor from the state church. The pastor came to see me because he was worried. He was concerned about me going off the deep end, you know, becoming too extreme or fanatical. So he came to see me. I was all by myself at home. I have a distinct memory of this. And so he, he took out his Bible. I didn't even know he had one. And it was, it was that bad. I don't think he taught about the Bible in our confirmation class. Um, and so he quoted Psalm 103. It talks about the love of God. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Therefore, he will not harbor his anger forever. Therefore, ultimately, God will forgive us. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love. And he stopped there. Talk to me about the love of God that covers all of our sins and ultimately all people will be saved. And, and I said, you left out the next part, didn't you? For those who fear him. You left that part out. The love of God covers all of our sins. Absolutely. What Jesus did on the cross, he covers all of our iniquities. But it's not just free-for-all kind of thing. We still have to respond in faith. We have to receive the gift which is available to us. So in light of this, Jesus' response is what? You're actually right. Many are those who will walk into destruction and only few will find the path of life. And so uh, in his response, the first thing he says is this word, make every effort. Or as the NASB would say, strive. Um, this word strive uh, that is used here uh, in the Greek language is the word agon, from which we get the word agonize. So our, uh, the English word agonize goes back to the Greek root of agon. Agon in, the, in original Greek was actually a place. It was the place where the Olympic Games were held. That's a place of agony. For anyone who's ever competed in a sport, in an Olympic kind of level, you've got to strive, you've got to compete. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians, everyone who competes, it's competition that's part of it. Exercise and self-control. Colossians, to this end, I labor, I labor, I struggle like a woman who is in labor, struggling with all the energy which so powerfully works in me. Epiphras, who was wrestling in prayer, not just praying, but he was wrestling, he was striving, uh, he was agonizing over you. And 1 Timothy 6 talks about the agony of the good agon, the good fight of the faith. Strive. Um, now, we've got to be very careful here of what we're, what we're hearing. Because this could be easily misunderstood as in Jesus is actually proclaiming as kind of a, a work-based religion. You've got to do more, okay? You have to do more. You have to agonize over this. Because you want to enter through the narrow gate, you've got to agonize, you've got to do more. And some people may automatically in their mind go to this understanding of, oh, I have to, I have to, Prove myself before God through my good works. That's not what Jesus is teaching here, by the way. He's not teaching this. Because what is Jesus' response each time? If you skip down to verse 26. Uh, here they are, the Jews, 
coming to him and says, well, we, we, uh, we ate with you. We ate with you, we drank with you, and we listened to you. You were on our streets and we listened to you. By affiliation, by association, we should be saved because we're part of the religion of the Jews. And Jesus' response is what? I never knew you. I never knew you. In uh, Matthew um, 7, Jesus talks about not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of God, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Question, what, what then is the, will of the, what is the will of the Father? What is it? He says, not everyone who calls upon me, Lord, Lord. So calling me Lord doesn't make you a Christian. But those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is the God's will there? Well, in, in Luke chapter six, I mean, John chapter 6, Jesus says, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. Luke chapter 6, let me say this again. My Father's will, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. Jesus is not proclaiming a work-based religion. Actually, He's talking about many will try to, will try to enter, yet fail. Or in, in Luke chapter 16, it talks about people trying to force their way into the kingdom. How do people force their way into the kingdom? By being a religious person. Religion is all about doing. You performing. You doing so that God would approve of you. That's not what he's talking about. He's actually, it's about a relationship. It's about, do you know me? Do you know me? And Paul actually goes a step further. It's not... You, in Galatians, he says, you know him, you know God, or rather, you are known by God. It's this knowledge, it's this relationship with God. That's what Jesus is saying, agonize not over your works, agonize over who am I? Who am I to you? Do you know me? No, our, our mission is what? As a church, you should be able to quote that. Shining the light of Jesus, by or in, knowing and following Him. We want to shine the light of Jesus in knowing Him and following Him. I think you'll talk about following next, next week. This, this week is about knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus. He's calling us into this relationship, and He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. So he says, make every effort, strive, agonize over this one question. Who am I to you? So he asked the disciples this question. Who do people say I am? Well, some say this, some say that. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes. Knowing God. Knowing Him. That's the thing that he's saying. That determines your eternity in such a sense that you should have agony over this. You should agonize over me, the Savior of the world. Who am I to you? That's a question all of us need to find an answer to, who Jesus is. So he goes on and says, then, so you should strive, or you should agonize over entering through the narrow door. <clears throat> and that door, of course, again, is Jesus, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, but it, 
what do you hear first when you hear the word door? My mind automatically goes to Matthew chapter 7, with the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus proclaimed, uh, and this is at the beginning of his ministry, here's towards the end of his ministry, he says the same thing. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small or narrow is the gate, and he's talking about more of a gate like a city gate, and narrow or literally afflicted the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. So Jesus at the beginning of his ministry already prophesied or said that only ultimately few people will really accept the message that he was to bring. Now, at the end of his life, somebody has observed the message of Jesus and says, well, do you mean that only a few will be saved? And Jesus says, yes. I already told you so at the beginning of my ministry. So therefore, enter through the narrow door. Now, this word door um, in, in the New Testament is, is used sometimes by Paul. Um, Paul, talking about opportunities for ministry, he says, the Lord has given me an open door to minister. It's used several times in that conjunction. And then it's used three more times as a picture of Jesus um, being the door. Uh, the first one is in, in the parable of the virgins. And so here's, uh, here's this parable of the ten virgins who had oil and they were waiting for the bridegroom. And he delayed. That's the son. That's Jesus coming back. He delayed in his arrival. So some of them ran out of oil. Then all of a sudden, the, the bridegroom came back, he arrived, the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. The other five ran off to buy more oil, and then they came back and knocked on the door, let us in, let us in. Again, what is Jesus saying? Away from you, I never knew you, I never knew you. It's knowing Jesus. And in John chapter 10, he clearly says, I am that door. I am the door for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers. And let me just say this, all who ever came after him, they're thieves and robbers as well. Not just those who came before him. All the, all those who came after him are thieves and robbers as well. Those who claim to bring the truth. Because Jesus is the truth. But the sheep did not listen to them. You know his voice. You're not going to listen to him. I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. So as, as Jesus is saying, strive, agonize to enter through the narrow door. He's saying, agonize to enter through me. Because I'm the way. It's through me that you will find life. That should be the most important question that you should worry and strive about. Also, um, a, a couple more observations from this passage is, is, is that the door can be closed. And when the door is closed, it's too late. So when he says in verse 25, I believe, he says, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. So it, 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 this door will eventually be closed, and then it's too late. It was Irvin Lutzer, who, he was a pastor at... Um, Moody, Moody Bible, I think it was called Moody Bible Church in Chicago. And uh, he, he wrote a book called One Minute After You Die. One Minute After You Die. 
That's the minute that determines eternity. Because while we are alive, alive we, we, God extends His love and His grace to us that we would have an opportunity to respond to Him in faith and to come to Him, to return to Him. All, all, until the last minute. And this even the, like the thief on the cross, in the last minute, he confessed Jesus. The door is wide open, but it's one minute after you die, he says. That determines your eternity. In the Greek language, literally, it says you will begin to stand. You will begin to stand. It marks a beginning point, and nothing can change it. So, there's a too late. There's also what he talks about this concept of inside and outside. Are you inside? Are you outside? When you're outside knocking on a door, the door will not open to you because I never knew you. Revelation chapter 22, Jesus says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, those who are forgiven, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Go through the gates into the city, outside, inside, outside. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So Jesus, in his language here, is fairly clear, isn't he? In talking to us about um, this being the most important decision that we ever have to make. Who am I? To you, who am I to you? So therefore, strive, agonize over this one question. How can you enter into the kingdom of God? <clears throat> Let me just say a couple words to this, this phrase that shows up here at the end uh, where he says that the first will be last and the last will be first. What does that mean? Um, it has a couple meanings in Scripture. The first one is more, this, it shows up in the book of Luke here in this passage. And it shows up in the book of Matthew a couple times, or two, three times. Um, in the book of Matthew, it's slightly different. It's, it's, if you're familiar with the, the, parable of the, uh, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, which is this parable <coughs> where the owner of a vineyard goes out in the morning hiring people to work in his vineyard. And they agree on a price. It's going to be one denarii, which is the, the wage for a day. A, day, a day's labor of work is one denarii. I'm going to pay you one denarii, you work in my vineyard. So they go out and they work in his vineyard. Then later, like later in the morning, he goes, just the same thing. He hires more workers. He goes early in the afternoon and then finally goes back again <coughs> later in the afternoon, like, like at 5 o'clock. So they all work in the vineyard. It's 6 o'clock, it's 7 o'clock, so now he pays them this, their salary. Those who started last go first. They, they get a denarii, a full day's labor's work. And the, the guys at the end of the line who started first are up saying, think, oh, great, great. If they got a denarii, I'm sure we'll get more because we worked all day long. We labored. We, we sweated. It was hard. I'm sure he's going to give us three denaries or maybe four. Well, they get to the front of the line. What do they get? Same. One denarii. Well, they're upset. It's like, well... How come they got one dinner and they only worked one hour? And we, that's not fair, is it? Would you consider that to be fair? Nah, it's not fair. They worked one hour, they got the same money, same amount, as we who worked 10 hours, we got the same amount. They'd say, well, didn't we agree on a prize? Yeah, but still, why are you so envious? Because I'm generous. The first will be last and the last will be first. 
See, God doesn't make a distinction as far as how long we served Him. The grace is available to all of us, even to the last minute. Even those who slip in last, they will be first in God's kingdom. He doesn't make a distinction between, because it's not the work-based religion, is it? It's a, it's, it's a relationship with Him. Just to know Him is all you need. You have heaven. In the kingdom of God, we all come like beggars. We all come like beggars. Whether we've worked a long time or not, it doesn't ma ma matter ultimately because the grace of God is available to all of us. But here in Luke, it's slightly different because he's actually he's speaking to the, to the Jews. And he, he tells them that you will be outside and there will be weeping, there will be gnashing of teeth. It's a description of uh, eternity without Jesus, a description of hell. Looking in from the outside, and those, the Gentiles who will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, he's talking about the Gentile nation, they will enter the kingdom ahead of you. The first will be last, the last will be first. Who were the first? The Jews who had the message of God had the covenant of God, had the law of Moses early on, yet they did not repent. He says, now I'm going to turn to the Gentiles and they will enter the kingdom ahead of you. Until what Paul says in the book of Romans, that Israel has experienced the hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved. And then they at last as well should receive him as their Lord and Savior. <clears throat> The last question I want to wrestle with is, is this, what opens the door? What opens the door into the kingdom? The door to a relationship with Jesus. I believe it's repentance. And Jesus is teaching here in Luke chapter 13. He's also teaching about our need to repent. So Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 is the other passage that I mentioned earlier. There's another passage which talks about a door. And you're familiar with this passage because you use it a lot. Uh, what Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. It's a beautiful description of our response in faith to him. He says, I'm there, I'm knocking on the door. Will you open your heart? Will you open and respond to me? But look at the context of this, this passage. The context is actually judgment. In, against the church in Laodicea, where in verse 19 he says that those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and do what? Repent. Be earnest and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. How do we open the door? It's when we repent. In Luke chapter 13, there's, there's people that came up to Jesus and asked him this question. or They had heard about uh, um, um, Pilate who had killed some of the, 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 there was a revolt against the Romans, and so some were killed, some Galileans were killed, and said, tell Jesus about this, and Jesus says, do you think that they were worse sinners than you were, than you are? No. So let me tell you, repent unless you also shall perish. And then they, he asked him this question, what about this, uh, this, this building, it was a tower that was built, and I guess, I'm not sure who built it, but it wasn't well built, and so he collapsed Upon it, and 18 people were killed in the collapse of the tower. Were they worse sinners than you are? No. Therefore, you repent. 
unless you also shall perish. See, we don't know how long our lives are. So Jesus says, you, you, you don't know when, when, when the journey ends. So therefore, now that you hear this, now is your opportunity to repent, unless you too shall perish. Repentance opens the door to the heart of God. Repentance is this change of heart. It's this literally means the change of mind. It's the transformation of the mind. It's when you turn around, you come back because you understand who he is. It's this full and total surrender to God, nothing less. It's raising the white flag. It's to give up. It means to capitulate and hand over our weapons. It's like the Japanese who ultimately just gave their weapons to the Americans and just said, that's it. And it's at that moment when we give up, this moment when we turn to him, the Father, that his grace becomes available to us. It's repentance that opens the door. You just say this, repentance is not remorse. Remorse and repentance are two different things. If you look at the life of Judas and Peter, both betrayed Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, didn't he? Peter betrayed Jesus three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Both betrayed Jesus. Judas then felt remorse. He felt sorry for what he had done. So he, he went back to the Pharisees. He brought the 30 silver coins. He wanted to give them back. He wanted to make it right. And, and, and hand it to them and say, oh, no, we don't want that money. That's yours to use however you want to. So he, 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 he's upset. He throws the money into the temple. He runs off and hangs himself. That's remorse. He felt sorry. Peter repented. Peter, after Jesus looked at him, what did he do? He walked outside. He fell on his knees. He began to weep. Because at this moment, he understood I think at this moment, Peter, Peter understood his need for salvation. That was his moment of repentance, I believe. Repentance is not just feeling sorry. Repentance is returning. Repentance is coming, understanding who you are. It's coming back to the heart of the Father. It's coming back to Him. It's turning around, coming to Him. And that's the invitation that all of us have. So Jesus, John the Baptist began that message, repent. Jesus picked up this message, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's, a, that's the message of God upon our lives that we're called to. Let me finish telling you a story here. Um, it happened about 100 or more years ago in 1912. Um, by name of a man by the name of Samuel Azariah, he was the first bishop of the Anglican church, churches or church. Uh, in, in India, and he was in southern India, he was a bishop there, and um, Christianity was still small, it was a small flock, and, and he was fi- they were fighting a lot against what he called the four demons of dirt, disease, debt, and drunkenness, um, and it was at one point that a Brahmin, um, and if you know anything about the Indian caste system, Brahmins are at the top, top of the list, at the highest caste. A Brahmin came to him and says, I want to I wanna become a Christian. He looked at him and says, why do you want to become a Christian? Just yesterday, I talked with some of the pastors in your city where you're from, and they just told me how pitiful... Uh, 
the Christians still are. They're still struggling with sin and, and with issues and stuff. And, and so why would you want to become a Christian? He says, well, I know, I know about those Christians. I know probably better than the, than the pastors do. But they have something that I don't have. They have forgiveness. They have a forgiveness. They know where to go with their sin. I don't have that. That's what I need. That's repentance. When we come to Jesus, when we bring ourselves to him and say, this is who I am. It's at that moment that the door opens up. Jesus opens up his heart and says, so agonize over this one. Who am I to you so that you will enter the kingdom of God? May the Lord give us grace in our understanding and may he, may he save yet more today.